Hello and welcome to episode 231 of the Greater Than Code podcast. I am so happy to be with you here today. My name is Coraline Ada Emke, and I am joined by my friend John Sowers. Thanks, Coraline, and I'm here with Jacob Stobel. Thanks, John. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our guest this week, Austin Parker. Austin makes problems with computers and sometimes solves them. He's an open source maintainer, observability nerd, DevOps junkie, and poster. You can find him ignoring Hacker News threads and making dumb jokes on Twitter. He wrote a book, taught some college courses, streams on Twitch, and also ran a DevOps conference in Animal Crossing. Such a nice pleasure to have you on the show. It's fantastic to be here. We can start the show like we always do by asking you our question, what's your superpower and how did you develop it? Uh, right now, my superpower is I'm 50% through a COVID-19 vaccine, and I developed it by staying indoors for the past year. But more hilariously, I guess, I, I developed a strong resistance to burns by working as like a gas station cook for quite a while back in my younger days. So I ran like the fryer, and you get really good at kind of ignoring hot oil spattering on you. So I'd like to think that that level of pain tolerance is ha- what helped me kind of get through uh, a lot of DevOps stuff and, you know, getting used to <laughs> computers. <laughs> yeah, I hate Kubernetes and its hot oil splashing. They should do something about that. It's open source. I guess I could open a PR, but, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, they say PR is welcome, but, you know, that's the open source maintainers. Bless your heart. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Austin. I want to know more about this DevOps conference that you ran in Animal Crossing. So if, if let's start at the beginning, right? Let's take everyone back to just about a year ago now, right? Where we were all kind of settling in for our our wonderful pandemic <clears throat> that has been extremely not wonderful for most people. But I think everyone was kind of coming to grips with like how long it would take, right? At first, there was certainly, you know, my day jobs, I work as in developer relations, so I'm a, a marketer, effectively, right? But I remember our, a lot of people were talking, you know, the marketing team and just sort of in the entire events space, like, oh, you know, what's this going to do about the summer events? What's this going to do about the fall events? And I'm sitting here like, I think this is going to last a little longer than, you know, till June. And so the conversation kind of pivots as everything gets, you know, progressively worse and people are starting to come to grips like, well, can we do a virtual event? And I don't think anyone at the time really had a good idea of what a virtual event would be, right? Like we all know video conferencing. Certainly it's something that we've come to rely on uh, in our day-to-day lives over the past year. Even if you weren't already in tech or weren't already working remotely, like Zoom is, it's it's been you know, Q-tipped, right? It's been Kleenexed. It's a, no matter what you're using, you're Zooming someone. So they, they have that going for them, I guess. People, I think there was a lot of possibility and not a lot of real strong ideas about like, what does this actually mean? So I wanted to try something different. And I was joking around on Twitter and I was like, I, you know, I had just gotten a copy of Animal Crossing, New Horizons, and I built like a fake, I was staging little screenshots where it's like, oh, look, this is funny. It's like a conference booth, right? It's like, haha, we're all giving out t-shirts and laughing. And a couple of people picked up on it and they're like, oh, that's really, that's funny. Like, I bet you could actually do a conference in Animal Crossing and stream it out because you can actually have people like join, you know, you have people like come over to your island and um, stand around. And I was like, well, actually, you know, you could just composite that video from the 
the output of the game over some slides and you know what's the difference right like someone's talking someone's clicking through slides and it sort of spiraled from a joke and i I put up a, a page a landing page on april 1st you know which is the best time to announce anything because if People don't go for it. You can always be like, ha April Fools. Gotcha. <laughs> but I put up a landing page and we had like a hundred people sign up, you know, register for like more information that first day. And I, I kind of, or I, I messaged them on Slack and I'm like, well, I got to do it now. Like a hundred people one day. That's great. Yeah. So long story short, over the next 30 days, uh, we basically put together uh, myself and then my co-organizer, Katie, uh, at the Cater Tot on Twitter, Katie Farmer, we put together a virtual conference inside of Animal Crossing. It's called Deserted Island DevOps. Um, you can go watch it on YouTube, the one from last year. And uh, we're doing another one this year on April 30th. So it's just a one day live stream. If you're watching it, you're just kind of like watching it on Twitch. We have a Discord that you can kind of talk and do the hallway track stuff and ask questions and network. But the gimmick is basically everyone's presenting has a switch and they are, you know, in Animal Crossing. They're on this island. They're dressing up their little Animal Crossing character. And we overlay their slides with the video coming out of the switch. And so they can emote and react. And it's it's a very kind of cute experience to watch. But I think it's also interesting because what I saw last year, at least, is that it solves a lot of the problems I think virtual conferences kind of most virtual conferences don't quite nail, which is, you know, I think a good event is something that kind of takes you out of your day to day, right? It takes you out of where you are and puts you somewhere else. Now, if you're going to KubeCon or reInvent or even a DevOps days, like you're doing this physically, right? Like you're not at your office, you're not at home, you're somewhere else talking to people. Literally, you have changed the physical location you're in. But most things, most virtual events, it still boils down to, hey, I'm watching like a Zoom effectively and I'm I'm talking to people in Slack. And if I wanted to do that, I could just do my actual job. Right. So I think one of the things that people appreciated about Deserted Island um, and continue to is the idea that this is like produced differently. Right. Um, there's a couple other people that are doing stuff like this. Like I think uh, Software Circus out of the U.K., They've done a lot of like themed events, themed virtual events like this, where like the presenters are wearing costume, right? Or there was uh, the great Kubernetes Bake Off, I want to say, where it's, you know, sort of a kitchen or cloud kitchen theme. So everyone has like their chef's hats. And I think having that concept also gives presenters a lot of mileage in terms of, hey, you can sort of theme what you're talking about, right? Like you can, here is a an analogy in a box. Here is a world that you can sort of put your talk in and you sort of have an idea that everyone can use those shared experiences, that shared language to uh, develop your talk and give people an anchor for it, which I think is one of the good ways you help people learn, right? Like if you give them something they know about um, and then you tie your concept into that concept, then you know they're going to get more out of it. And the other thing is that it's a great way to be expressive, right? Like in Animal Crossing, you are who you are. You're whoever your avatar is. So you don't get any of the, you know, no, I hate being on camera a lot, right? It's just, it gets exhausting because you feel like you're performing for the camera. You're not, it's not the same, but in this, you know, nobody's seeing your actual face. They're hearing your voice and then you can dress your animal crossing avatar up like whatever. So you can be creative. You can be who you are without having that sort of 
weird performance pressure of people looking, you know, staring at a bunch of people that you can't see staring at your face. And it's an important topic these days because there's like still everything's online and will be for a while. And, you know, I think so many people are still learning how to do online events and, you know, those skills are going to need to happen, you know, keep happening over the next coming years. I think because you can do now online events, which are more accessible to more people all over the world. You know, you don't have to be the sort of person who can fly places uh, in order to attend certain events. Like having them online is, is a great accessibility option. So finding new modalities for making that interesting and not just sitting on Zoom all day, I think is a worthy endeavor. Yeah. And it's super challenging. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm like dragging people's work because I know like, uh, CNCF has had to move a lot of stuff virtual. I know uh, the entire DevOps days community has had to move a lot of stuff virtual. And this is like super hard to do. It's not easy. It requires a lot of intentionality, a lot of planning. And I think we will all get better at it over time, right? Like the, the future is not necessarily going to be like the past. You know, I don't know if there's ever going to be a day where we just kind of flip a switch and it's all like, oh, we're back to how we were before March of 2020. I think so there's still going to be a desire for virtual events and there's still going to be a desire for, you know, figuring out ways to be more inclusive and to kind of bring people in, especially because of like climate change and everything like that. Right. Like at some point we kind of have to come with our, to our reckoning about the actual cost of a global travel based society, but that's maybe a slightly different topic. I don't know. I actually think a good side effect of all this is a focus on accessibility. And like you said, um, a lot of people aren't able to travel. It's uh, it's expensive. I know conferences, typical in-person conferences, used to spend quite a bit of money with programs to bring in um, marginalized folks who maybe couldn't afford the travel. But uh, one thing I do miss is getting that audience reaction, especially uh, as a storyteller. I tend to uh, I tend to tell a lot of stories in my talk, and um, I like to be able to see. You know, is the audience with me? Is the audience getting what I'm saying? And I can tune my presentation in real time based on audience reactions. And I really miss that. I really miss that aspect of it, that feedback aspect of it. Because at the end, people are like, oh, great talk. And I'm like, yeah, but did it get to you? Yeah, did you connect with it? Yeah. And that's so hard. It's challenging, especially because so many of like on the production side, there's a bias, I think, in virtual events to pre-record due to a lot of factors like and I'm not, and this is not a, a diss on pre-recording. I personally hate it. Like I basically have stopped doing pre any, any event that's like, you know, oh, we want you to pre-record. I'm just like, eh, I'd rather not because of just that's the style. That's the way I talk. I agree with this idea of storytelling, right? Like you're not just reading slides, right? If I just wanted someone to read slides, I could just hand them a book. But what's weird to me is like one of the things that I think that we did that I haven't seen anyone else really do is like, there's already a way that people do this. Um, and if you watch Twitch, right, if you watch twitch.tv or like live streams, like the kids do these days, you know, there is a real time chat and people are reacting in real time. Like it's a little bit delayed. It's a couple seconds delayed, but I don't know why you haven't seen other virtual event platforms take that idea and really try to like have even just like a button, right? Like a clap button or like a sparkle fingers button or something to kind of let people know that there's like people out there watching you and that 
they are reacting positively or you know, maybe not negatively, but they're reacting right. Like that they are cognizant of what you're saying. It's really surprising to me that we haven't seen more like that. And I would love if some of these event platforms kind of thought about that. How do you get, how do you make that actual immediate real time or near real time audience connection with the speaker? And the Twitch, uh, the Twitch thing is really interesting. Back in October, I started streaming in addition to everything else I do in my life. I'm a musician and um, I started streaming recording and music production and I have a weekly show and uh, you're right. The audience interaction is, is great. And it's a, uh, I incorporate that into my show. I'll stop. I'll stop what I'm doing after I finish like laying down one track and I'll be, I'll ask the people in chat, what instrument should I pick up next? Or what sound would you like to hear there? Um, things like that. It does make that more interactive and it, and it brings some of that human connection back. And I think you're right. That's what's missing from a lot of, from a lot of these online, online conferences is that connection. Yeah. And I actually think you've hit on it right there with streaming, right? Like there's, there's been a big question. I think, I don't know how much you follow like the CNCF, uh, KubeCon EU talk acceptance drama that kind of popped off a week or so ago. But the short version is this is obviously KubeCon is a very prominent conference in the cloud native world and it gets a lot of submissions. And because uh, it gets a lot of submissions, a lot of talks get dropped, right? A lot of things get cut. And that's every event. You know, there's always more submissions than there are slots for people to speak. But uh, it, it turned into a bit of a blow up, you know, blow up on Twitter. And they actually had wrote a blog post that's kind of very explicitly described again, like, hey, this is how we pick these talks. You know, we're not. There's a lot of factors that go into it. And the thing that kind of occurred to me, and I've seen some people talk about, especially people that have kind of been in the industry for a while, is, you know, what really is the benefit of a, a conference at all when you have things like Twitch and you can build an audience for yourself and you ha- and you know, it's easier than it's ever been to get a platform, you know, and some people in the world have used that for good ends and some people in the world have used that for ill ends, but regardless I could go out and, you know, just say like, I'm not doing talks and, you know, I'm not doing conferences anymore. I'm just going to stream or I'm going to produce things and put them on YouTube. And the only reason you would read the conference at that point is sort of as like, okay, this is a quality filter, right? These are some people saying or suggesting that these talks or these individuals are, have a higher value to the community because we got a bunch of smart people to kind of look at it and say like, yeah, we think this one's better than that one. But I really wonder if, all of this with COVID, with the pandemic, with the kind of change in events is going to inspire a different model going forward where there, there's less of a the centralization factor of like, you haven't made it until you've done a KubeCon keynote or you haven't made it until you've done like the DevOps days circuit or you haven't made it until you've written a book or whatever. Like if you got something to say, like go say it. And I think maybe that's a better way because that also is more accessible, right? Like you don't have to, there's less gatekeepers. And a lot of times, you know, gatekeepers and experts are useful because they help cut through all the chaff. But on the flip side, you know, it can be harmful too, because everyone has biases and even the, the best process is never going to weed out bias. And most of the time you don't want it to weed out bias, right? You want it to be biased for good things and not bad things. I don't know. 
I feel like there's a conversation that needs to happen about this that hasn't quite gotten off the ground yet. I'm interested to see where it goes. One thing that sounds interesting about this Animal Crossing conference is you talk about like it was a different modality altogether. And I'm just curious if like did this conference include or at least was it like there a side effect of like conference goers just playing the game with each other? Yeah, actually, that was one of the really interesting one of my really interesting learnings from it was that when you, you know, when you kind of have a community started, just the best thing to do is just like let them go do stuff. Um, We had a bunch of people form like impromptu watch parties where they would kind of open up their island and invite people watching to kind of come and be in the same game space as them as viewers and like run around together while watching the stream. Right. So you, and we, they would tweet out pictures like you would do at an actual conference, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm hanging out, you know, hanging out on the besties and then tweet out a picture, a screenshot of their island with people like has sitting. Some people went really into this. They built like little watch party rooms where everyone had chairs and a little movie projector set up. Some people had like coffee machines and, you know, little snack plates or whatever in the game. And it's, it was really interesting to me how when you kind of let people be creative about it, and you let people like try to build what they want inside this sort of modal, this world, this bigger world, I guess, of being at a virtual conference that they'll do stuff with it because it's fun. And because it kind of, it, you know, gets you engaged, right? Like it, again, it's not just watching another zoom. It's not just chatting on Slack. It's you're doing something. And the really good thing about that is if you are doing something, if you do make it like a unique experience, people will actually take the time for it. Right. One thing that I think gets lost in a lot of these virtual events right now is that like, it's not something you're blocking off time for. You're saying like, okay, I've got like maybe two or three talks I really want to watch. So I'm going to, you know, block off 45 minutes of my calendar here and there. And I'm going to watch a different screen for a minute. But with this, what we saw was people would block the entire day off. It was like a six hour, maybe like five hours total. Right. And people would were there the entire time. Like we had like eight, nine thousand people watching basically consistently from the beginning to the end. And about 15,000 people total watch it over the course of the day. So nearly 50 percent of that were people that were there like, you know, the whole time, roughly. And I think by giving people that space to make time for themselves and to say, like, I'm going to treat this like an actual thing and not just you know, something I'm going to pop back into that meant they could do the networking, right? They could do the chatting, they could react in Twitch and they could do the little, the clap emojis and the sparkle emojis. They could kind of have those hallway track conversations and network and bond and get that sort of social jazz you get by talking to people that have the similar problems or right. Or have kind of overcome challenges and are like, Oh, this is how I solved X or Y problem in Kubernetes. Or even this is, you know, like, Oh yeah, this is a way. This is a strategy I learned for dealing with managers that don't understand me, or making sure that we. How how do I communicate this technical concept to the business? Right, like it. It wasn't just I want to talk about really cool IP tables configs. It really was like, hey, we're all people trying to solve these problems, and that was I think wonderful to see and something that I'm really hoping that we kind of nail again this year. I think like the wonderful thing about conferences that. You know, as someone who has a good deal of just social anxiety or shyness, like is like the in-person experience was like an excuse to sort of, well, it was like it prevented me from having the excuse of like, oh, I could just watch it on 
it's, it, this is something I could just watch on YouTube. Like I was able to like convince myself like, no, you actually have to go there and you have to sit next to someone you don't know and introduce yourself. And I feel like conferences that I, that are, I could get the exact same experience just watching the video anyway. I lose that sort of side effect, which is I think the more valuable thing is that like, I'm, there's an experience that I would miss out on if I wasn't there. So it, it made me think about what Coraline's saying about like that immediacy of being a speaker. And I guess like what I'm wondering is like, maybe the, the secret is like, if we can't reproduce the immediacy of people being in the same room together, and I'm not certain that's true or not, whether it is, maybe the, the trick is like, how do you use technology to your advantage rather than thinking about it as like a barrier to get around? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to say I have all the answers. Certainly the thing that I really hope, cause I wrote, I wrote a big thing about it on my blog and I feel like what you, you know, there's kind of a progression of events, of virtual events that have happened where people are experimenting and trying new things. And I, th- I would like to think they're all kind of getting, trying to get to that point, right? How do you use the technology we have to enhance connections rather than viewing it as just like, oh, this is a thing we got to do until we can get everyone back on a plane. Um, and really, that's the best thing about technology is when you find an unexpected use for it, when you find something outside the use case it was designed for, and you get that feeling of delight. That's, yeah. uh, I think that's when tech is at its best. Yeah, I think that was what I, one of the things, like the, the two big things was about the animal, you know, about deserted island, right, is the idea that this is a deliberately delightful and cute and comfortable place. Like it is the softest game you can imagine. There are no harsh edges. There is no failure state. There is no, I don't think there's a 90 degree angle in that entire game, but it also gives you like enormous constraints because it's a very crafted world. And so working around and through those constraints, but also having sort of the delight of overcoming them and like figuring out like, Oh, this is this really soft round space that I can kind of do stuff in, but I have, but I'm, I have these walls, I have these barriers set up that I have to work around. I mean, that's why I'm in technology, right? Like it's because it's an endless source of challenges and it's an endless source of like, Oh, I can, here's a hill I can overcome. Right. Like I was never like super popular or fast or anything. Right. Like I sucked at sports. I still suck at sports. Like the one time I went skiing, I tore my ACL in like 15 minutes. Right. Like I'm just not a coordinated guy, but in technology, there's always a new hill to summit. There's always something new to learn. There's always a new challenge that presents itself. And that to me is like, that's why I stick with it, right? Like I could do other things, but here's something that's always going to challenge me and is always going to give me something new to do. That I think is worth celebrating in itself. And if we can find a way to kind of blend all these things together, right? Blend all the different ideas about you know, uh, events and the delight and constraints and challenges of technology and da 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 and throw that together in a Twitch stream. Like, cool, rad, let's do that. And I think that was a lot of the inspiration. I was just like, hey, this might blow up in my face. This might fail terribly. But it's better to try it and see what happens. And every day when I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my God, it's never going to be as big of a success. Like, everyone's going to hate me, whatever. I kind of come back to that like, well, 
better to try and just like fall on my face than it is to wonder what might have been if I hadn't tried. That kind of reminds me of, of safety and something that we talk about, at least in workplaces, is making workplaces safe to fail. And um, I think at the event level, the fear of failure has got to be a lot more on a different level. So uh, were you prepared to fail? And how did you prepare to fail? Uh, that's a great question. To be like super honest, I'm not sure I was prepared to fail by the time it actually... So there's two types of failure. There was the failure of like the technical failure, right? And that was something that I did have plans for. So there's a lot of technical failure that could happen during a live event, live event production. My computer could have crashed. My internet could have gone down. Um, a presenter's internet could have died. And so in preparation for that, there was sort of a, you know, a, a playbook effectively of like, okay, if this goes wrong, then do this. If this goes wrong, do that. Now, in doing so, I actually like discovered a lot of other things that I didn't think could go wrong. It did go wrong. Uh, one example was, you know, we had very strong moderation in the chat because it's the internet. It's a public thing. There's no registration. Anyone could come into the Twitch chat and say whatever. So we, I, I was pretty biased towards like, okay, no, let's crank up sort of the moderation filters and make sure that people aren't going to just come in and say some mean things. And one thing I didn't think to ask any of the presenters is like, hey, do you have something that's interactive outside of this? And one of them did. They had kind of a an interactive presentation where people went to like a Slido or something and could that had its own sort of chat input, text input. And, you know, like any large enough Twitch stream, you had some trolls that had come in and started to type in some slurs and other non-code of conducty things. And so it's like, oh, crud. And, and, you know, switch that scene off really quick and try to make sure, you know, coordinate in chat, like, hey, are you aware of what's going on with the speaker in real time while they were continuing to present? And we managed to kind of deal with that and then cut it out, you know, cut out the offensive language in the video on demand version. So it's not there and it didn't disrupt things. It was a, you know, a blip of like, ah, and then we dealt. I think in terms of like the actual, like, Beyond that, though, the, the actual psychological failure, right? Because my expectations were pretty low in terms of like, oh, what is a success? Because I didn't spend, we didn't spend a lot of money on it. I didn't have any sponsors. I didn't have like, I think I had an email list with like 1,500 people on it. And I was like, well, 50 per, roughly, you know, you have some sort of webinar or whatever. You get 50% of the signups. And that's a good one. You know, if, you, if 100 people sign up and 50 people show up, great. You're doing fantastic. So I, my expectations were like, oh, here's my bar, 1,500. You know, if we get anything, if we hit that, if we hit anything close to that, we're doing great. And then we hit 8,000, right? And so the problem coming back to this a year later is, oh, now the expectations are so much higher, and we've taken sponsorship, we've taken, we have sponsors now, we have uh, sponsor money in order to fund things like scholarships, right? I want to be one of the problems last year was like you had to have a switch to participate. And so this year we've kind of I've gone around and said, hey, if you want to sponsor this and pay for someone that doesn't have access to a switch or Animal Crossing or whatever, like you can sponsor us by buying that person the equipment they need to join to join this because not everyone can afford that. And obviously it's some level of exclusionary. Like not everyone has Internet. Right. But. 
within the group of people, the class of people are giving talks to this. I figured that's about what we can do, especially since you don't need a good camera. You just need a microphone. But because there's sponsors now, because like the, you know, there were so many people last year, it's like, how do I set myself up for the chance that this is a, a failure psychologically? And that I don't have a great answer to therapy, I guess, is the answer to that. <laughs> I, I talked to this, my therapist about this stuff, but it is, it is like, I think the psychological effects are actually much harder to plan around, right? Like, and much like in a workplace, psychological safety is significantly harder than technical safety. So my advice is to be very open and honest and transparent with the people that you're organizing with and to, and to talk about it, right? I think this is the problem with most things is we don't talk about failure enough and we don't talk about how does it feel to fail? Uh, how do you get back up after you failed? And by keeping all that inside, like that leads to, you know, a lot of negative stress outcomes and stuff, right? And you just feel like crud. So normalize talking about failure. Were there any uh, like specific structures or just communications that you set up with your organizing team around that to get everyone on the same page about thinking through failure and, and how it feels and how you're going to react to it and anything like that? So that's a, also a really great question. It's an area that I could do better at. But, so the organizing team is very small and informal for this. Like it's mostly just me and Katie, right? And I, I've wound up doing quite a bit of it just for a variety of reasons that like aren't really important. But we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, I think that level of nervousness and that level of, you know, stress that you can have, right? And a lot of it is both of us kind of like talking ourselves down, right? And being like, you know, nobody, you know, I, and some of it is also just being very straightforward with people, with external people, right? When I did this last year, like literally the expectations were very, very low because, and a lot, and so when people applied to speak, it's like, well, you kind of know what you're getting into, right? I didn't pretend this was anything other than what it is. And this year as well, like when I'm going and I'm talking about it or I'm like putting together a sponsorship prospectus or whatever, I'm saying like, look, here's what happened last year. You know, I can't guarantee the same level of thing, but I'm also ask, not asking a ton from you. So I think this is one lesson from this is like preemptive de-escalation. It's better or maybe a better, a better way to say this is under promise over deliver, right? Mm -hmm. The perspective is very clear. It's like, look, this is historically what we had. Uh, here's what I'm asking from you, and here's what you're getting for it. I, I've seen what a lot of conferences charge for sponsorships. I'm asking you for much less. And you're not getting, and maybe compared to those, you're not getting as much. You're getting a 30-second ad a couple times over the day. You're getting your logo. You're getting some shout-outs. And that's it. You're not getting leads. You're not getting like an attendee list because there is none, right? That's one nice thing I think about doing stuff like this is you don't have to be like super aggro about stuff because it's like, well, this just doesn't exist. There's no registration, so I can't tell you who's attending. But by lowering the stakes a little bit, people are still willing to kind of throw you a couple grand or whatever on a community conference because one, that's a rounding error in most places, event budgets. And two, even if you only get a thousand people and you expect it 8,000, like the video is going to be there it's a long-term asset, right? Like those videos are going to be on YouTube forever and they're going to be something people go back and watch. So yeah, like under promise. And the third thing really is I, and this is actually makes it worse, not better, but 
I actually have not. This is probably the longest I've talked about this to anyone. This podcast right here. Most of the promotion for this has come from people that attended last year and spoke last year that are going around and talking it up and being like, oh, no, this was the best thing I did in 2020. Y'all, you should definitely like put this on your calendar, right? So that actually makes it worse because that's like all of your internet friends are like, oh, my God, this was so great. And you're just sitting here like, wow, I hope I don't let all these people down. But that's kind of just that's life, right? Like, I'm not going to tell people, hey, don't talk good about this um, because I'm worried that it's going to, to fail. You know, let those external expectations try to lift you up a little, right? Like if everyone is they knew what it was last year and if you can deliver that again at least then you're probably going to be doing all right i like that you there's sort of two threads i wanted to pull on with that first of all there you talked about like having multiple different people like different constituencies like there's you as the organizing team there's you and the speakers there's you and the attendees there's you and the sponsors like there's all these sort of different groups and there's different levels of safety with each of them that you like a different type of relationship with each of those. And they each have a different level of like communication and, and setting expectations. And then I think the other thing that really jumped out was the setting of expectations. I think that's such a key to managing like an emotional reaction to something. Cause so often those negative reactions come from missed expectations. And, and if uh, that proactive communication about like, where things can land and what's possible and what's likely is a great way of, of keeping everyone on the same page. Absolutely. So I, I want to actually kind of start on a second one, right? About expectations because the expert, you know, I think this is something that catches me a lot and probably catches a lot of other people that are like wherever you are in your career, really. But there's both a tyranny of low expectations and sort of a tyranny of high expectations. And we, we tend to focus on one or the other, but the hardest thing in the world is actually figuring out like what that band is in the middle between your expectations are too low and your expectations are too high. I think the tech industry is absolute hot garbage. This just stem to stern. There's a ton of practices we have in the industry that I think because we're so afraid because the, the way capitalism works, the way funding works, the way everything works, every incentive is tuned towards preventing you from ever setting expectations too low. So if you look at like OKRs, right, the concept of OKRs, the idea is if there's objective and key result, and you should always set those as something you'll never hit. You should never set your key result too low. You you know, I, I think the googly way to think about this is like if you achieve 70 percent of your KR, then that's good. That's what you should expect. And to me, this is this, that's terrible. Like I I hate that every fiber of my being because you're giving me an objective that I'm always going to fail. Right. That's how I perceive it. And I get why we do this, because it's always bad to be too low. Right. There's, and I think a lot of this is. It's cultural. It's like kind of the success win, whatever business culture that's infested technology, where we would much rather set a very high bar for ourselves and then not meet it rather than set a low bar and clear it. Because if it's, you set a low bar and you clear it, then that means you weren't pushing yourself, right? And because of the way that all of the, the money works and how monetized we kind of make all of our labor, if you aren't doing enough, you might as well not have done anything at all. 
So the, the, the thinking is better to have that high bar and then miss it. But that's extremely, I think, this just dismantles like people that aren't super neurotypical, right? Um, it certainly dismantles me, and I, I'm whoever. I'm I'm Austin, right? I'm one person in the in the distance, but I think it's prevalent throughout everything in tech. And I would love to see that like interrogated more, right? Like you're starting to see a lot of kind of the golden geese of the tech industry be interrogated because of the pandemic. Things like you know, the value of like people working in person with each other, right. Or the value of having companies in San Francisco or the value of hiding your pay, right. Of pay inequity. I I think this idea of like, what should our expectations of ourselves be of our teams of the performance of our software, even right. I I made a joke there today. It's like, I, I want to see smaller applications written by fewer people that are paid more you know, that don't work as well. And I'm not kidding because I think that the idea of like, Oh no, we want every, we want Google, the Googles, we want the big companies of the world to sort of like encompass everything. We want this one stop shop is, is it's not great. It's harmful. It's actively harmful. And I know that there's a lot of voices and people are like, well, you can't just dismantle, you know, you can't just like cut Google into two pieces or five pieces or Amazon into five pieces and have it all work out. And I agree. You have to be intentional about this. But I remember when I was growing up in the 80s and I remember what technology was like a little more then. And the idea that's like, you know, someone could like go into business for themselves, like maintaining a library and just selling a license for people to use that library. Maybe they figured out a really fast way to do a bubble sort. And it's like, okay, I'm going to sell you a library, you know, a Pascal library that you can link to and it does a sort really fast. And if you have a problem with it, then you get support from me and you email me or whatever. And I fix this bug for you. We've taken all those things that people used to be able to kind of do and build and craft and just said, eh, we're going to socialize all that expensive maintenance and put it on this open, the open source community and have them do that for free. And then we're going to build businesses around like extracting value from all that labor. That's why the Uh, seventh criteria of the ethical source principles is that uh, we have a right to be paid. We have a right to uh, have the value of our work respected. And if you're making billions off an open source library, you would better be given back. Yeah. And I think it, it goes, but it feeds back from, I mean, this all goes back to like the, to capitalism.txt. It's all from the same source in a lot of ways. But I think that idea of like expectation setting and never setting the bar low, like that is a product of this. And it's all, it's all intersectional, right? It's all interrelated. There is the, no one evil other than like really big sociological, complex socio-technical human uh, systems or whatever. And we can't necessarily, we can make it better, but we can't fix it without like equally big changes. Right. Yeah. It, it's, I think that the sort of capitalism, like more is always better rule is what's poisoning this. Like, cause you can make a small app and it can be successful and it could be two people on the team, and those people could be very happy, but like everything in society is saying, well, make it bigger, add a bigger team, do more things. Well, blah, blah, blah. I remember reading a story about at one point a couple of years ago, the Uber like iPhone app was growing by one megabyte of compiled code per week because they were adding all this stuff to it. And that, that just sort of boggled my mind. It's like, it's Uber. They do like really just one thing and they were having to do all these things and they kept bumping up again, like iOS store limits of yeah. the size of the binary. 
and just like that mentality of let's do all the things because we can and let's stress ourselves out and work ourselves raw just because more is better. Yeah. And I think that also has, I mean, it's also like a, it's a team problem, right? It's an organizational problem. Cause how does that happen without you having so many people working in the same small space, you know, that are duplicating effort that are duplicating features even, or under, you know, things behind the scenes and you just keep hiring and hiring and you keep growing and growing because that's all you can do because that's the only way you can exist in society as like a corporation or as people building a product or whatever is to constantly consume and grow and grow. This goes into like uh, this non-fungible tokens, right? NFTs that have taken uh, at least my corner of the internet by storm. And the idea that like, Oh, this is a way that you can like introduce scarcity into digital art. And it's like, Oh my God. It's such a bad idea. Every blockchain thing is so, so awful. But the amount of energy it takes to actually encode these things under the blockchain, even an Ethereum blockchain, because of how, you know, proof of work algorithms function, like the only purpose of these things is to consume more energy for a completely pointless purpose. Like you're consuming energy for the sake of consuming energy to prove that you're doing some work in order to quote unquote prove that you own something that like you can't own a tweet like Twitter technically owns that tweet, right? Like there are people selling like cryptographic signatures like, Oh, it's like a signed tweet. You own the signed tweet. It's like you own a link, you know? And that, I'm, not, I'm not even sure that you can own that like from any sort of legal or moral or ethical standard. Like that's not how ownership works, especially intellectual property ownership. Ugh. This, this industry every day makes me want to move to the woods and raise alpaca. Well, Maybe there will be an alpaca feature added to Animal Crossing soon. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Just live out my alpaca farming dreams in Animal yeah. Crossing. It's a All shame right. that we need money to live. So we've come to the time on the show when we go into reflections, which is uh, where each of us talks about the things that we're going to take away from this conversation. Maybe the things we're going to keep thinking about or the new ideas that we are exposed to and uh, what you know, just what's going to stick with us. Uh, so for me, I think... The, uh, you, you know, I'd heard about Deserted Island DevOps, uh, last year when it happened. I think some of my friends presented there, but hearing you talk about it more in depth and behind the scenes showed me a bit more about the creativity, both on your side and in the audience as they sort of put together new ways to experience a conference. And I, and I'm really excited by that because like it's not a place where I've seen a ton of creativity being expressed and finding new ways to have a conference-like experience, like different mediations, different ways of participating, I think are really valuable because right now we're sort of copying online what we used to do in person, but kind of, and it's not always working out great. So if you just sort of throw away all this stuff and sort of start over from this is our platform and these are our constraints, I think that, that leads to creativity. And so it's nice to see that. And I'm thinking about what you said about moderation and the importance of moderation I was uh, involved in the famous tech feminist wars of the uh, <laughs> of the 2010s, and I was one of the voices calling for codes of conduct at in-person conferences. And I think that becomes even more important with virtual conferences and the need for moderation. And um, I don't think we do a good job as an industry of uh, thinking about moderation needs, thinking about how to manage random people on the internet coming to a virtual space. And um, I'm hoping that if virtual events continue, we'll 
invest some more technology. I think Twitch does a great job of giving us tools. And um, I'm hoping that that idea of really investing in moderation um, takes off because I think that'll have ripple effects in a lot of different domains. I'm going to reflect, I think, on what you were talking about with failure and psychological safety and how to communicate failure or those feelings of failure, you know, and setting expectations about it to not only sort of peers, but also to people I'm organizing events with or to people I'm working with, right? Because I think that one thing that this conversation really led me to realize is that I don't actually communicate it as well as I thought it, or I don't, there's things I don't think about, right? Uh, and sometimes you need someone to kind of mention it to really pick it back up. And I'm wondering if there's ways that we can develop, you know, toolkits or playbooks or even like, you know, just point by point, like, hey, here's a guide to sort of have these conversations because they're hard conversations and they're conversations that maybe you think you're ready to have or that you think you've communicated, but it's like, well, did you think about this? Right. So that's something I'm definitely going to take away from this. I, I will point out on the moderation thing. I actually used, uh, I used your code of conduct for the deserted Island one. So yes, yeah, so I, I appreciate the work that went into that because it was invaluable to me to make a good one for this. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you, Austin. I haven't participated in any conference since the pandemic started. And I think part of it is that being stuck at home, like pretty much everyone else, hopefully, is that I think I was always telling myself, like, do I really need to take time off when I would probably be bored and re and restless and I would wish I could just watch the video later anyway. And I think I was a little kind of missing the point because I think maybe what I what I really need to do is find a conference like this one that has been thoughtful about like how participants can interact when not in person and sort of just make the leap and sort of force myself to do, you know, take the day off or the days off. And that's the only thing I'm in I, I'm doing and, you know, sort of force myself to be engaged with it because I've got nothing else to do, just like an in-person conference. So, yeah, that's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that a shot. Well, Austin, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you for your, uh, for your openness, your honesty, your vulnerability, and your great ideas. I think we all have something to take away from this conversation. So it was really great talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was wonderful to be here.